This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. So the other day we had on Don Jose Ruiz, one of the sons of Don Miguel Ruiz, who wrote the book, The Four Agreements, one of the most inspirational and best-selling self-help books of all time, of all time, and sold tens of millions of books, The Four Agreements. Don Jose Ruiz had written The Fifth Agreement, and today, very honored to have Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., Jose's brother, Miguel Ruiz's son. He's written several books related to The Four Agreements as well, including The Five Levels of Attachment, The Mastery of Self, The Mastery of Life. All of these are great beautiful books and very excited to have him on and talk about all of these ideas. And he helped me considerably during this podcast when I heard his own experiences. So here it goes. Have you ever lived in New York? No, no. I was telling Jay that I, I like to, I, I visit New York with frequency. I have friends and I always stay in different neighborhoods. I figured the way to really get to new, uh, new York is every time I go in, it's just it's a totally different neighborhood, and that way you get to explore it. Yeah, yeah. no, I my I lived in New York more or less, or lived in and around New York all my life, mm-hmm. and then at one point I decided to throw away all my possessions and then just live in Airbnbs all around New York and really oh, get nice. to know New York. Like I lived in a different neighborhood almost every week. Nice. So you, you basically the, the whole concept, but you just ran with it a, a, a lot more like permanent. That's awesome. Yeah, and um, it's interesting. And now I don't live in New York. Now I'm in exile from New York. But uh, where whereabouts? Uh, right now I'm in uh, near Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, nice. That's and a, where that's are you a different rhythm. Yeah, my friend Neuro just uh, he spent a lot of time since he since we graduated high school, so '94, and he just now is about to leave for a year to go to Hawaii, you know, uh, because of some work. So it'll be the first time he's lived outside of New York since 1994. So he's like, all right, shifting the whole thing, just adapting. And basically, I think after spending uh, two years in his condo with COVID and all that kind of thing, he's like, all right, okay, I, I kind of want to go to a place where I can walk around a bit more and just have that little. Well, it's a, it's a very different experience. And, and this relates to your book. Like, you know, New York is the sort of place you get very attached to and you think of yourself as a New Yorker and that means certain things. And then when I was leaving New York and I was giving, I was writing about my reasons for leaving New York and, and, and people were upset at me for doing that. And people were saying, you're never going to be, people are going to hate you forever in New York. And I took this very personally, like, no, I'm a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. But I realized, and this is, you know, kind of the level of my attachment to New York is it took me a while to realize that there's a life outside of New York and you don't have to be in that hierarchy to be happy with where you are. Yeah. No, I, I, I can understand, you know, there's like, it's being able to uh, adapt to new rhythm, but you kind of remind me, it's like about a, a year or two ago, I stopped drinking coffee for some time just to take a period because I, 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 I got tired of getting headaches from uh-huh. not drinking coffee and I didn't want something that have that much control over me. So I stopped drinking coffee and I kind of posted about it on social media. And it was shocking to see how many people reacted as and take it, took it personally that I stopped drinking coffee. And I was saying it, it almost seems like for some, my, my choice made a judgment on them. So it's, it's crazy sometimes when you make a choice for yourself 
and how someone says, kind of takes it personal, saying, hey, what's wrong with where I live? Why are you moving to Atlanta? Where you, New York is everything. Why? And it's like you're, you're, you're dumping on them. It's somehow that that happens. And I've seen it when I, when I stopped drinking, the same thing. People would judge and like, hey, you think you're better than me? And I'm like, no, no, I just, I just want to live. Your book, The Five Levels of Attachment and Mastery of Self, these, these books, to a great extent, describe what is happening. But there's another way also of looking at it, which is that they've made this big life decision. They're going to spend part of their morning drinking coffee because it's going to make their life better as opposed to worse. Mm-hmm. And now you're saying you're not going to do this. And mm-hmm. so they're then, they get cognitive dissonance. You've just triggered some cognitive dissonance for them as if this major life decision they've made is wrong. Their brain won't let them accept the fact that you might do something different and that's okay for them. And yeah. and you describe this very well in the five levels of attachment that they've somehow become either identified with themselves as being a coffee drinker mm-hmm. or become fanatic about it. And mm-hmm. that you've questioned this life decision yep. and they can't deal with it. Their brain prefers comfort over being right. And you've poked at their comfort. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a, uh... Somehow I am wrong, and if I'm wrong, I'm not worthy of love, so I have to be right. And yeah. I'll tilt everything to make it fit that I'm right. And it's, it's, it's the comfort of knowing who I am. You know, one of the reasons why people are so attached to conditional love, for example, is that's the only way they've ever known how to love and translate that to other things in life, coffee, New York, or California, whatever. And you, you'll see the same pattern. Well, what does that say about me? Yeah. And as you point out, this is kind of the root of all sorts of types of unhappiness, like whether it's regret or judgment or anger or fear. And I want to ask you about these things because I have everything bad in the sense, and I don't mean bad in a judgmental way. I mean it in an informational way. I do all the things, the worst types of attachment (laughs) possible and the opposite of the mastery of self, even though I've made I try very hard. I do. I, I meditate. I, I write about my problems and experiences and try not to be judgmental, but I want to ask you about your books, but first I want to ask you about you. So yeah. your father obviously wrote one of the most inspirational books of all time, the four agreements. I've read it many, many times over the years or decades. I've recommended it to so many people. It's it's I'm a huge fan. I'm really grateful that you are on the podcast. You've written the five levels of attachment, mastery of self, mastery of life. What's what's your background? Like you did you did you grow up with your dad and he was constantly saying, "Be impeccable with your word." <laughs> he would do something and, and you would judge him. You don't make assumptions. <laughs> well, in a way, it's like in '97 when the book was released, the Four Agreements. Uh, I bought the book because my dad gave me a copy, but I didn't read the copy. I wanted to buy it, so I I, wait, I, I looked for it, looked for it, and I finally found it in Berkeley, California. And when I began to read it, I put the book down around chapter three because it was my dad telling me what to do all over again. Kind of like what you were saying. Is that when you grow up with it and you're a teenager or someone young, you know, whenever your pop says, it's not like advice. It's more like a type of thing. It's like, you better do what I tell you to do. And that's how I interpreted it back then. But my background is that I was born into this family and my grandmother, you know, that's the thing. It's like when, when someone tells me I'm walking in my father's footsteps, I'm like, well, that's not true. I'm walking in my grandmother's footsteps. It was my grandmother who decided to share the tradition, the family tradition with the community. You know, she, she was born in 1910 in Mexico and Guadalajara and Juanacatlan, Jalisco. 
uh, lived in Guadalajara, Mexico City, and, and Sinaloa, and, and Tijuana, and eventually made her way into San Diego, where she opened up a little temple. And in that little temple in the 1970s, she decided to teach the family tradition to everyone in the community. So growing up, the spiritual head, figurehead of the family was my grandmother, and she was my first teacher. So when I was 14, when I was uh, my initiation into the family tradition, my father says, okay, for the next 10 years, you're going to go and work with your grandma. And once you graduate from college, then I'll start teaching you. And for 10 years, I was my grandmother's apprentice. You know, she was a faith healer and a spiritual leader in the community. And she didn't speak any English. She was all Spanish. So I translated everything she said in her lectures, in her sermons, in her healing sessions, in her consultations, and basically just repetition. That was basically it. So, but at the same time, I was raised in duality or, or juxtaposition. You know, you can say I lived in San Diego, California, but I commuted every day to school in Tijuana. So I went to school in Mexico, but I lived in the United States. So I lived in That's two so cultures, one that spoke purely Spanish and one was pure English. Then you have the other part where my grandmother was a spiritual uh, healer and at school we were pretty academic with the International Baccalaureate, very much academics. Then my, my grandmother was a faith healer and my father, my uncles, we're all doctors. My father was a retired neurosurgeon. My uncle is a neurosurgeon, neurologist, oncologist. My other uncle, my mom is a dentist. So there's a lot of Western medicine and, and that. So I grew up with juxtapositions and dualities continuously until I moved from Tijuana, you know, stopped going to school in Tijuana. I went to school in Bonita in, in, in Chula Vista. And then all of a sudden, it was a whole different world. You know, all of a sudden, it was learning English and engaging and, and just being part of that. So for me, that's my real background in the sense that I just was in two nests that I just went back and forth. And with that, my grandmother took me to so many places and taught me. But when I graduated from college and my father took over the, uh, the apprenticeship, he was pretty ruthless. You know, it's it's kind of like, the way my father would teach someone is like, for example, if you wanted to learn how to swim, he'll throw you into the pool and he'll say, swim, but father, I can't swim. Bob, help me swim. But dad, I can't swim. But Bob. Miguel, your head's above water. You're swimming. Well, I'm doggy paddling. It's not what I imagined. No, it's not the beautiful strokes that I was imagining, but I'm, I'm able to do this. And that's how my father taught me. Like it was basically, he would set up a situation push me towards that direction and see what I can do. And a lot of his apprenticeship with me was in that way, besides going to obviously lectures and presentations. So when I first started teaching, the very first time he would have me talk in front of an audience, uh, it was the first time I saw him with talking to a thousand people in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and he brought me along. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to my son, Miguel Ruiz, before the dawn, of course. And I walked out and I was just waving to them. And I thought we were just going to walk out because I kind of knew his presentations and I knew he had reached the end. But instead of walking out, my dad looks at me, gives me the microphone and walks away. And I'm going, I had two choices. Either I walk with him with my tail between my legs or I, I open my mouth. And I haven't been able to shut up since. 
<laughs> well, what did you talk about that first that first talk to a thousand people? The first thing I did, well, first I was petrified, I was nervous, but I just wanted this. I said thank you so much for having me here, and I talked about what it was like to grow up in this family. You know, I, I went to what I know. My father always taught me when you talk about something, talk about what you know. If you don't know it, don't touch it. Don't even bring it up. So I, the very first thing was growing up in my family, I grew up learning how to have faith in yourself and to be able to take this step, kind of like right now, like paraphrasing, of course, I'm talking to a thousand people and I have no idea what I'm doing. So the only thing I can do is to open my mouth and say what I'm talking to you right now, the ability to have faith. Do you have faith? Like for example, in order for an object to move, there needs to be a force to move that object. Where are you going to put your faith? In the object or in the force that moves the object? Do you put the faith in the force? That's me. That's, I'm not this body. I'm not this mind. I'm the force that animates it. You know, I'm, that's me. So I put my faith there and I talk from that point of view. Mind you, it didn't last long. You know, in five minutes, I, I ran out of things to say. You know, I, I had just started. But that's what my father wanted me to be able to take that step. And like, either you sink or you swim. And other way, you'll be okay because I wasn't in real danger. It was just my ego that was in danger. You know, it's like, uh, did I do it right? Do I do it perfectly? Do I did it? Was I eloquent? And that matter is like, it didn't matter. All I had to do was just open my mouth and say what first came. And it was about faith. This which has been the somewhat of the essence of the teachings. And the funny thing about it is that with this, I combine what I learned in the International Baccalaureate in, in Mexico, in Tijuana, and what I learned from my grandmother. And that's how I put it into words. A couple of points on all this. There's a lot to unpack. Let's say you didn't succeed in your talk. Let's say you just kind of fumbled for a few minutes and then you got off stage and you felt bad, like, oh, I let my father down his his audience is never going to like me after this they're they're gonna re always remember this i thought i was a better speaker but it didn't turn out i was as good as i thought and i don't really understand any of these teachings that i've been studying for years how would you have how would you have dealt with it how how would your father have have reacted if you were saying these things well i know what my father would have done which is to keep to keep setting situations up like that that's that's what's what i that's what i know of my father he would set it up, set it up, set it up until I get comfortable, which probably happened several times without me knowing. And what I would do is like, well, one thing that's still true to this very day is that I still get nervous every time I, I give a presentation. I still have that, that urge to run away. You know, there's, I still have that little bit of stage fright, even in interviews, even now, I can still have it. But I know that as soon as I open my mouth, it's going to be what it is. Just let it happen. And what would have happened, and I'm just looking at my own pattern, is that I probably would have judged myself. I probably would have doubted myself. I, I know that because I was using, I, I was already doubting myself with uh, what I was studying. I was, I was working in the film industry at the time. I was getting my master's in, in uh, art design and art direction. So I had a little bit of doubt of my abilities to be creative in that way. You know, that you have that insecurity. It's like whenever 
the, I still remember the first time I gave and presented an art show and I put up all my photography and videos and I put it up and it felt like I was completely naked. And I was so nervous that my friend Helen was just sitting next to me and just holding my hand, just like, you, you, you're, you're okay, Miguel. And I still remember those sensations of walking up and hitting play and just my, my legs just being what they were. But just like that, and just, you just kept showing up. And every time you showed up, it got better and better. I'm like, okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. And somehow, some way, it all worked out. And that, that part what I was telling you, like, talk about what you know, don't talk about what you don't know, was something that always helped me out. So like, okay, I'm talking about something I knew. So you can say when I first started teaching, for example, and what I do now, I would run out of things to say in five, five minutes. The first presentation I gave, I ran out of things to say in five minutes. So it was spurt, 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 spurt. But as time progressed, and this is like 2006 or something like that, Little by little, I just it just got longer and longer and longer and longer to the point where a few years ago I did a person a, a, a five day workshop and I ran out of and I ran out of time. I've I I had so much more to say, but I just ran out of time in those five days. So it was just practice, practice, practice. So it's one of those things that you know when you talk about mastery of life, mastery of self, or mastery of love, or whatever. We're not talking about dominion over something or, or imposing control over something. It's about practice makes the master. You know, when you start doing that little by little, you gain confidence in yourself. Little by little, that confidence turns into trust. And little by little, that kind of becomes faith. Like, I know I can do this. But you go through all the, all right, I screwed up here. I did it wrong there. And one of the things that helped me especially when I was first starting, was I transcribed everything. I recorded every teaching I had, and I transcribed it. And I could hear, all right, that didn't work, that did work. It's kind of like watching uh, tape, and if you're an NFL player or, or any sports fan, you watch your tape and try to figure it out. I transcribed everything I said, and I said, okay, that didn't work, that does, that does. And that, that kind of... I kind of embrace my mistakes and learning from that. Okay, that didn't work, but it might work over here. So that's more of that memory of, that I had as I developed what I ha had. And had I not spoken that day, I might, that might have paralyzed me for a little bit, but knowing my father, he would have continued to set it up. He would have continued to press the issue of, this is my son. This is my son. And was this before he, he published the four agreements? This is after. Uh, the, the event in Jackson Hole, Wyoming was in 2003. So it was like a year, two years after his uh, heart attack. And um, he, was, he was still recovering. So that's one of the things that kind of uh, kind of put me into teaching. I was going to say drag me, but it's that at first I, I was just going to concentrate on working in the film industry and, and, and visual arts. And then my father had this heart attack and he needed help. So, and the way he needed help is that he, with the heart attack left him with 15% of his heart capacity. And he, he would have difficulty speaking. You know, the, years later we found out that the feeding tube that kept him alive 
damaged the vocal cords. But at the time, we didn't know that. We just thought it was just the heart, that it was so weak. So my brother, Jose, was already teaching, and I was the one that I wasn't going to do it. But my father needed me. So I would go and do presentations with him. And it's kind of like a tag team, you know, that image of a tag team in wrestling. He would go out there, he would open up, and then he would look at us kind of to give us that notion of like, all right, I need a little break, can you come in? And we nod, you know, we, me and my brother, or if, I, if we were together, we look at each other, who, who's ready? Jose's ready? Go. I'm ready? I go. If it's just me, whether ready or not, here I go. And we would go out there and present, and he would go and sit down and recover. You know, he would recover his, his health, his energy, kind of like get a little pause to reset, and I would give. And then I would speak for 15 minutes, 20, 30, and, you know, kind of little by little. And looking back, he probably did it on purpose. But I would say my thing, look back, and he would give me the nod, and I would reintroduce him, and that's how we were giving the presentation until he, he slowly increased his time as he was getting better as the years progressed. But that's how, that's how he did it. And that's how I slowly developed into what I was. Now I am. Did you give up your aspirations in the film industry? Yes and no. Um, I continued to work, but when I was 28 years old, I was working, I was part of a crew. I was working for several, uh, one producer who was working with different companies around the, I was, I learned that in the film industry, and it's true in many other places, you get hired not by your resume, but by your reputation. So I had a very good reputation of being a very hard worker and a very good one at that. So I got part, be part of this crew. And I kept saying, yes, yes. And, and here's the thing about film in, this, in the film industry. Every job you're in is your last. You never know if you'll ever get a phone call ever again. So I always treated the job I'm in, this could be the last time I work, so do it and do it, do it well. Because if you say no, for example, if someone calls you and you can't do it, you, you refer, you think of a friend, I can't do it, but my friend here can do it. So you give him a, you give him a shot. You know, that's how, how it was done. But sometimes you get afraid of saying no, because you never know that if that person will ever call you again. So you, you're in a situation where you balance your yes and your no. You know, you work hard, and you never know what's going to happen with a no. So the thing about it is that when you're young, especially when I, at the time I was in my 20s, that's really fun. I really enjoyed that kind of lifestyle. And it's like, go, 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 go. The, the last job I did was I, was I was a PA in a Missy Elliott video for Past the Dutch. And that was, that was a fun, fun gig. Uh, but at the time I saw how life was. You know, I had a lot of friends who were going through divorce because... They didn't have time for the wife or, or the kids. And I, even I saw people high up the ranks that would hire some of the PAs to help them take care of their kid because they don't have enough time. So I asked myself, well, do I want that in my 30s? I asked myself, what do I want my 30s to look like? And I, they answered, I want to be a father. I want to be a husband and a father that's there. You know, can I be that in the film industry? And at the rate I was going, I was going, probably not. It's fun. I, I like it, but, but uh, maybe not. So right then and there, that's what really kind of stopped me from working in the film industry. It's like all of a sudden, what do I really want? 
because you can't serve two masters. You know, it's, it's, I know what the film industry is like. I know that it's going to be this consumption. And in, in, in a film industry, a 14-hour day or a 12-hour day is a short day. You know, it, it's, it's, they're pretty long days. And you never know where you're going to go. That's the fun part. But as a father, you know, uh, or a husband, that may not be the greatest thing unless you have someone who, like, who is in your crew. You know, like we, get, we work together. That's, that's the only way we'll see each other. So at that point, I had that, all right, I don't want that in my 30s. And I stopped. I, I tried real estate briefly, and I didn't like it. So I, I did that for a month or two, and that's it. Never sold the house. But when you were trying real estate, did you think to yourself, wait a second, my father's building an audience. He's written a successful book. Did you, did, you, did you start to think this could be a plan for you as well? Because you could, A, follow in his footsteps to some extent, but then, you know, used kind of the platform that he began creating to, to launch your own projects? Well, what happened is, uh, one, I didn't like real estate. It, it, I, I, even though my uncle's a realtor and my stepmom was a realtor, I, I, it was kind of something I kind of grew up, I, I, I enjoyed going to look at houses with them, but I didn't, there was, it was not my, it was not my passion, it wasn't my heart. At the time, I, this is 2003, 2004, when this decision happened in my life. I was 28 years old. And by this point, your dad had blown up with his book, which came out, mm -hmm. I think, in like the late 90s, 1997. Yeah. And so you saw the, the audience and, and success he was enjoying. Yes and no. Uh, for, for one thing, I, I felt like I was a cover band at the beginning. Like I was basically going out there, teach the hits, you know, the four agreements, mastery of love. That's, that's what I could teach, but it wasn't my words. And I was just going out there to help my father, you know, basically that's how I did. But what, what ended up changing it was all of a sudden, one day I started teaching about the four conditions and the four conditions is the distortion of the four agreements. You know, the, the telltale sign that you use the four agreements as an instrument of domestication is judging yourself for taking things personal, judging yourself for making an assumption, judging yourself for all of that. And I became aware that I was attached to the four conditions. You know, like that's the thing about growing up in a family. You know how to corrupt all of it and find all the loopholes in order to continue to believe what you want to believe. The moment I discovered that, that you know, the image of I'm Don Quixote and I'm Sancho Panza, I know that I'm crazy, but at least I follow through. And just in case I'm right, I pretend that those are giants when they're really windmills. So I became aware of the four conditions in my life and I kind of wanted to start teaching that. And, you know, that's the, the five levels of attachment really started from that point of view. I started having my own voice and I started to teach. Now, when I first started the teaching, I had zero people show up at the presentation just because the, there's a name doesn't mean that people will show up. You know, my, my father's publisher always says, you, you, you'll get one shot. So you, you develop that shot. So at that moment, you know, if I had five people show up to a presentation, that was a good, that was a very good press presentation. So when I first started in 2006 and seven, that's, that's what it was. I would show up to a place, you know, the, the East West bookshop in Seattle, the East West bookshop in, that used to be in Sacramento, 
gave me my first shot. And East, uh, Mount, East West Bookshop and Mountainside, th th those three gave me my first shot of doing things by myself. And very few people. But the working in the film industry and being my major and all that, I just had that, that mentality. This could be my last one. Do it. So even if, if zero people showed up, I would stay in that classroom for the two hours. I would just stay there. I would not leave. I would stay there. And I would basically grab my recorder and just start talking. All right. Because that's what it was. It was more of an excuse. Like, this is the ground. So I, it took me several years, even after the book came out, Five Levels of Attachment, when I began to see more people coming in. But at that point, I got better and better. It's like I stopped being a cover band and I started basically sharing what I knew. Because all of a sudden, somewhere along the line, instead of repeating and, and putting it in words that I could understand, I was talking about, all right, this is how it impacted my life. And when that happened, I really got interested because I was saying it in my own way, in my own unique way. And that was galvanizing. Plus, the, the, the other part is I became a father. And nothing puts a fire up your, you know, your, your ass, your butt, like becoming a father. Now, all of a sudden, like, okay, I've really got to produce. And my wife uh, gave me a certain deadline. Like, Miguel, if by this date you haven't, you know, have a book or have this, you have to re-change re re your, your, uh, your career. So I did it. I just followed, you know, for years. You know, it's like if I broke out, if I came home breaking even, that was a good, that was a good workshop. I, I didn't lose money on the travel and the hotel and going there. And I did that for several years. And that it was just this willingness to start from the very beginning. And to be honest with you, that was what was exciting about it. I, I really enjoyed those, those things. And when the five levels of attachment came out, all of a sudden there was this instrument that, I introduced to people. That's how I, I saw it. Like books, book signings and things like that was just introducing this book. Because I can, my job was to have the book be more popular than me. That was always the mission. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realized, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. By the end of those tours, I felt like, you know, the Bon Jovi song, Dead or Alive. I was so exhausted and tired, but it was fun. Now you're still obviously doing it. I'm still doing it, although I have to pause a little bit. My, my, my son, who has autism, is going through a bit of a rough patch. So these last two years being at home has, has had the silver lining of that I'm here with my wife, helping my son, who has autism, anxiety disorder, and ADHD. Autism is my ally because he's really good. He's phenomenal. It's the anxiety that, you know, puberty and, and anxiety and autism has made it for a very interesting journey. So at this moment, my main job is to be a father and a husband, which is, ironically, that's the choice I made back in, when I was 28. So I have a daughter with autism and she's, um, she's, she's just turned in her 20s and, uh, uh, all the things you just said, like the, the, you know, anxiety, the ADHD going through puberty, all these things are, you know, people with people who are high functioning with autism have many, you know, socially, they're very similar, but very different to their peers. And so mm -hmm. that's sometimes is, is troubles, it's, you know, different flavors of autism. Yeah. But, you know, I'm curious, like you, you said, mentioned you found your own voice and I would say, for instance, the five um, levels of attachment is very different from the four agreements. The four agreements are like, on the surface, they're, here's, what, here's four things you should try to do. Okay. And with the five levels of attachment, it's more like my interpretation of it, it is, here are some things that you possibly do badly. And again, mm -hmm. I'm not making a judgment with badly. It's just, here are some things you possibly do that mm -hmm. are keeping you from your authentic self. Mm -hmm. Um, and on the one hand, the four agree practicing the four agreements are ways to overcome these five levels of attachment, mm -hmm. but you still have to, awareness is the key. You have to be aware that you're doing these things. Yep. 
and you might not want to give up these. That's the problem with the levels of attachment. You're attached to them. Yeah, yeah exactly. You might not want to get rid of them. And you have a great story that you repeat in both um, the five levels of attachment and the mastery of self, which is the soccer fan and the soccer player. Mm -hmm. So the soccer fan will get disappointed when his team loses. And even though that's like a false kind of attachment, like he wears the, the soccer team shirt maybe, and mm -hmm. he like identifies in this hierarchy of soccer teams. And when they go down in the hierarchy, the person will be disappointed and maybe angry and, and so on. And there's actually scientific research that this occurs. And, but I wanted to start off asking you about the, the player first, before I ask you about the fan, because mm -hmm. the player puts his heart and soul into performing well and, mm -hmm. and his career depends on it. Maybe his uh, financial situation, maybe his relationship with fans of the team and his teammates and so on. So there are a lot of different reasons why they could be disappointed themselves if they don't do as well. And is this attachment when they are disappointed again, the disappointment might be a driving force. Like, Oh, I did horrible. I need to do better. I'm so bad. I need to force myself to do better. And that's a, that's a common reaction. How do, how does that distinguish between attachment and, you know, kind of hitting this bottom to be basically motivate further? Sure. Well, I, I would say that the, the mastery of self is the book about the player and the five levels is about the fan, but it's the player that gets refueled. Like for example, it's, it's the key problem from the four agreements and throughout all the books is something called domestication, a system of reward and punishment by which we model the behavior of an individual, where if you live up to the expectation, you're worthy of a reward. And since we are emotional beings, that reward feels like acceptance, which feels like love. And we, when we fall short of that expectation or that image, then we're worthy of the punishment, which feels like rejection. The lack thereof of, of love is the way we've learned conditional love. I love you if you live up to my expectation. So you can say that as the five levels of attachment takes us, it, it grows with, with uh, especially at level four and level five, uh, internalization and fanaticism. I will use my identity as the model by which I domesticate myself and I have to live up to the expectation. Now, you can say at level four is when I begin to corrupt the four agreements and turn it into the four conditions. I have to be a good Toltec. I have to be a good spiritual person. I have to be this. I have to be that in order to be worthy of love. At level three, I just identify myself as a sports fan, a Toltec, or whatever image. At fanaticism, this image, this identity, has complete and total control. Who to love, who to hate, who to reject, who to kill, because... I don't see myself as a human being. I see myself as the personification of this idea, which means I see everyone else in the same way. The player grew up with that, being projected a mask, an image of if you do good, you're worthy of this reward. And if you do bad, you're worthy of this punishment. So you can say what motivates you, what drives you, what's your motivator to create something, you know, like if since you have a, a, your daughter's autistic and my son is autistic, then we're both familiar with ABA, uh, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, punishment type one, punishment type two. It's, uh, we, we, we have this image of what to expect. And if you live up to it, you're worthy of the reward. And if you don't, you have the worthy of, of the punishment. You can call this conditioning at the same time. 
in a player, especially one that is a star, the fan will project themselves onto the player. If the player does good, they do good. If the player does bad, that means that they're somehow bad. You know, they're terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm supporting a loser, and I don't want to be a loser. So do it good, especially if you're wearing the shield. If you're, if you're wearing the shield of my team, of my city, of my neighborhood, of my community. For example, at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about making the change to Atlanta. Someone who's attached to New York, hey, how can you betray us that way? Someone who stops drinking coffee, how can you betray us this way? You know, all of a sudden, it's not just about sports. You can see, do it with the city. You can do it with, with, uh, with our preference in drink, you know, or, or the way we eat, you know, vegan or meat eater, whatnot, whatnot, the way we vote. But the athlete itself has a different thing is that it's projected. There's a projection of what's going to motivate you to create. If you let this have complete control of you, then you're doing it, you're doing this sport because of the reward. Financial, support, fame, you're not doing it for the love of the game. You're doing it because, well, I want the reward. I want, I'm, I'm so attached to this image of what it is to be this projection that I'll do my very best to live up to these expectations. And we internalize it. And now it's not just the fan that projects it, but within ourselves. I internalize their projection of me, and I can't let myself down. And all of a sudden, I'm in, I'm in a trap. It's obsession. That's, you can say that's what conditional love does. We create an obsession to live up to an image that doesn't exist. But I'll do the very best to make it exist. And I think many people, it's not just that they're attached, but obsession is like a normal thing. Mm -hmm. So for instance, let's say, uh, you know, similar to the player in soccer, everybody could relate to, let's say, being very successful in high school, let's say an all-A student. So, so the, the, the all-A student in high school suddenly becomes the all-C student in the best college and they're crushed their opinion i thought i was a smart person mm -hmm. and now i'm a mediocre person mm -hmm. and that's not going to change they're always going to be the c student they're not going to improve over time they're going to be the c student in the best yeah. school potentially yeah. someone is and so how to just like the player or the player says oh i'm the best soccer player in the world or i think i am and then they get to the big leagues or maybe it's five years in and they're a little older suddenly i'm no longer the best mm -hmm. and i never will be for the rest of my life like and i've identified for the first 30 years of my life as the best soccer player in the world. And now I'm not. Yeah. How do they, they don't even know anything other than obsession. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing. That's why a lot of athletes and a lot of uh, professional uh, entertainers, because you get so stuck in it or nowadays uh, influencers or Facebook, social people like, I'm not getting enough likes here. You know what, what's happening here? We get attached to that reward. And all of a sudden, that's where conditional love really kicks in. Is that we've, we've increased the level of attachment to something. Now, here's the thing. An attachment is investing of yourself emotionally, intellectually, energetically to something that's not a part of you, but you make it a part of you with that emotional investment. Mm. Now, an, an attachment is healthy. It's something we engage and we disengage. Engage and disengage. What makes it unhealthy 
It's that the moment comes that we've engaged and the moment comes to disengage, we can't. We can't disengage because we don't know life without it. Who am I without this? This is what really drives us and intensifies our attachment. So when that happens, who I am, who am I? I have to reinvent myself and I get lost. You know, this is where you know, the image, I've always liked the image of the, Napoleon Dynamite's uncle, Uncle, uncle Rico, is that, is it? You know, he's still stuck in somewhere in the 80s when he was a quarterback. And that's, you know, he's still hoping for that, that heyday. Kind of like the Al Bundy, he was, his high achievement was scoring a touchdown until someone tells him, oh, your knee was down. You hold, you're holding on to the glory days and all of a sudden that's who all you are because that's when you were accepted. That's when you got all that reward. And it's an obsession trying to live up to that image. The master yourself, it's about the moment I no longer pretend to be something I am not for the sake of someone else's point of view, especially my own. It's the moment where I accept myself, this is who I am. What do I like? What do I enjoy? You look at the people who do it for love, for pleasure. You can say the opposite of obsession is passion. Although people sometimes confuse passion with obsession, but it's, it's completely different. Passion is doing something you love to do. And you do it because of that. Whether you're the best in the world or not, you're just simply, this is what I love to do. In sports, the person I can think of growing up is the image of Tony Wynn, you know, for the Padres. First person at practice, last person to leave practice. And he always said, like, my work is during practice and at the game time, I'm just going to play. I'm just going to enjoy it. Let's just have fun with it. It was always that image that like, I get to do what I love to do. And from that point of view, it's not even a job. It's something I love to do. And when you look at someone, an, an athlete, an, act, an artist that has a pure joy in it, you can hear it. You can hear it in them. My, uh, my nephew and my, and my niece, you know, two, two of my nephew, uh, family members, asked me, Miguel, the uncle, Uncle Miguel, how can I be an author? I want to write books. I want to have that. And I asked them, do you really want my advice? Yes, uncle, I want your advice. Do you really want my advice? Okay, here's what I want you to do. And I want you to accept this truth. I'm never going to get published. Uncle, no, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that I'm never going to get published. I want to be an author. I want to be, because at that moment he was trying to like, should I continue working at, at, the, at my job at the, at the Home Depot or should I just work all day working on my, my, on my book? You know, he was in this position. Say, repeat after me. I'm not going to get published. No, 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 no. And after a while, eventually, both my niece and my nephew in, the, in different times. Okay, uncle, I'm never going to get published. Good. Now that you accepted that, why are you still going to do it? And they both said, because I love it. And I said, that's it. Success is going to be unique to you. It won't be like everyone else's. It's going to be unique to you. And you find that balance. If you're still working at the Home Depot, whatever your job is, when you come home, write 500 words every day. And by the end of the year, the year you'll have a novel. You'll find that balance until the moment comes where you can live off just working on that. But the only reason why you're doing that is because you love to do it. If you look at it from that point of view, 
if you're willing to let go of the motivator of that reward of the praise or the projections that people might have of you, and you simply say, why am I going to do this? Because I love it. Well, let me, let me ask you though, like, let's say they love it. Let's say a writer loves it. Mm-hmm. And after persistence, they finally get published. And let's say magically that first book sells a million copies. Magic. Like my dad. Like your dad. And let's say the second book sells 100,000 copies. Third mm-hmm. book, 10,000. Mm-hmm. Now the fourth book, nobody wants to publish you mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so the, another analogy would be someone who struggles to build their business. They're poor the whole time. They make a lot of money and then they go broke. So they're mm-hmm. equally poor as before, mm-hmm. but they're miserable now because yeah. they made the millions and then they lost it. So they, they're back where they started when they were happy though, but mm-hmm. they're no longer happy because they had made the millions and then lost it. So now you, you're the writer you, and part of your writer identity is not just that you enjoy it, but you publish, you sell a million copies, but then suddenly did you have just one thing to say? Did you do something wrong? Did you not live up to these expectations? Like it's, how do you then get over that attachment that you're on the decline um, of something that you once loved? I remember uh, Dave Gaham from Depeche Mode saying about that, you know, like you basically, you get that hit and you're always chasing that hit. You know, the rest of your life is just hit, 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 but they're still releasing the albums. Mind you, Depeche Mode is quite famous. And my father, my father, same thing. It's like, uh, he got lucky in the sense that he wrote the four agreements and he's written a lot of books since then, but they haven't really reached the four agreements level, but he still writes because he feels like, okay, I want, I want to download as much as I can. When you don't have that level of success again and again and again, is the willingness to restart. Now, what are you chasing a dream? Are you doing it because you want to live up to that image again? Or are you doing it because you love to do it? Of that, of that case, if you love to do it, it doesn't matter how much it sells. You know, there's so many musical bands that I love that well, they were one-hit wonders, but they still enjoy enjoy listening to it. And sometimes the willingness to let go. My father always taught me this: there's no bad decisions or good decisions. If it's a good decision, you follow through. If it's a bad decision, be able to correct it, which is let it go and make another decision. And only your ego will stop you from making a new choice. If you're already failing and it's your ego that's stopping you from making the choice to correct it, then that's what the obsession is. That's the attachment. But if you're able to let go of it, all right, that's not where I'm at. What I want to do now is like being able to reset the whole thing. Because here's the thing. Today is the youngest you will ever be. You have your whole life ahead of you. How do you want to live it? How do you want to engage it? Who you were in the past doesn't exist anymore, but you are the sum of every decision you've ever made. This is who you are today. But how do you want to go forward? So at that moment, everyone has that moment where, all right, I got it. How do I want to go forward? Now, for me, right now, I, I just released a new book, and it almost feels like I'm not going to write another book for a while because... At this moment, I'm, I'm so concentrated on my son that the idea of writing right at the moment doesn't work. Only because my attention is there. My son and my daughter, obviously. And my wife. Right now, this is the time for that. But the ability to let go of a dream that no longer serves you 
allows you to make a choice that allows you to reset and restart again. An example could be of yours, like, all right, I live in New York. I live through the Airbnbs. I'm done with that. I want to reinvent myself or simply experience something different. I go to Atlanta. If you let all the opinions of people who judged you for doing that and just stay in New York only for that, then you're not living your life. You're living someone else's life through you. But it's not something that's going to bring you happy because you're no longer wanting to do, have this experience. You want this experience. Let's see what that is. Is it going to be the right choice? Is it going to be the, the wrong, right, whatever? The only way to find out is if you actually follow through. And really, that's it. So it, it seems like what you're saying is there's, there's like a path of attachment. There's First, there's this level where you're either the fanatic or you've internalized some identity and you have to live up to that. Okay. Then there's kind of the awareness. And then there's there becomes this gap between the expectations and the reality. And that mm -hmm. gap, the larger that gap is, the more miserable one becomes. And then there's the awareness that you can choose not to have that gap. You can either lower your expectations or or completely change them into some other field, like reinvention. And then there's also this idea of you can continue doing the same thing, as you said, because you love it, but also you could find maybe a higher meta purpose to it. So you mentioned with your father, okay, after the four agreements, he continued writing. And of course, four agreements was amazing and it sold tens of millions. So it's all, it's hard for any other book to compete with that. But you said something interesting. You said he still realized he had things to download. And I assume you mean from this source of wisdom, he had things he still needed to, to communicate. Mm -hmm. So you gave him a higher purpose mm -hmm. than, oh, I need to write and be a great writer. I need to download this. I have still things to download. You, you, you put an umbrella or, or a, a, a bigger circle around the circle of writing and you gave yeah. it a higher purpose mm -hmm. so that he can continue to move forward in this purpose, which still contains writing. He didn't switch from writing to painting, but you, 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 people always feel happy when they're improving at something. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like he, he, he stuck with that single purpose of, I got to sell 10 million copies again. He developed a higher purpose to wrap around the writing so he could still improve in that higher purpose. Yeah. No, it's like, it's, it's, it's that you can say that's the difference between passion and obsession. You can say that if you believe the projection that you're a failure of an author, if, if you only had that one hit and everything you wrote after that has this decline, but if you listen to that, I have to, then you're going to consider yourself a failure. The only reason why the only reason why you continue to write is because I have to prove myself that I can write something better than this one. But when you have a joy or passion or love for it, it's like you don't have that. It's like, all right, for example, when I release a book and it gets it sells all right, all right, I have a green light to continue doing what I what I can do. I can still focus on this. I still have an opportunity to go up at that. Using the sport analogy, like, all right, I have I I earned the other opportunity to go at bat. And what got me the earn the ability to earn that? I enjoyed it. I I I love doing it. It's it, it, you can hear it. You can hear it when you express it or do something that it's something that is that resonates. 
You know, that's why I say it's like you, you get hired not by your, by your resume, but by your reputation. Why do you do it? It's what's the motivator? What motivates you to move one foot in, in front of the other? What makes you take up and stand up and create? If you're obsessed about that image, you're going to go in that direction, but you're not living your life. You're living someone else's life. That's, you can say that's the trap. You're doing it so I can live up to other people's expectations, especially my own. But if I'm doing it because let's see what I can do. Let's see what we can create. Let's see what we can make. Then all of a sudden failure is just, just this thing that didn't work, but it taught me, okay, that didn't work. I won't use that again. Let me see what if this one will work and this one will work. And eventually it'll hit its target. The desire to keep doing it is what allows us that opportunity. Yeah, and I guess a, a higher purpose to any of these things is essentially dealing with the trials and tribulations of trying to move up or down with some goal. And if it doesn't work, kind of the, the very higher purpose is this mastery of self that you, that you talk about in the book, the mastery of self, which is okay, this is at least giving me an opportunity to move towards my authentic self. Mm -hmm. So I love doing this thing, but I'm a fanatic. Maybe I could be more, you know, learn something about myself through the process of success and failure here. Yeah. It's like, for me, for like the five levels of attachment, it was never about going from level five to level one. It's about becoming aware. This is where I'm at. What do I want to do with that? Because growing up and people would talk about detachment, detachment, I would say detachment to what? And my grandmother always had the question, do you control knowledge or does knowledge control you? And when I was 14 years old, I had no idea. But as I developed and learned and experienced, I realized the, the answer to that question will always be different depending where I'm at in my attachment. You know, at level five, the answer is knowledge has complete and total control of everything I do because that's all I know. At level three, identity, knowledge and I are just one. At level four, knowledge it gives me the rules by which I live my life. At level two, I know that I'm the authentic self, but I'll use knowledge as an instrument to inform my choices, but I'm the one making the choices. And at level one, it doesn't matter what I know. I'm aware that I'm alive. That's what makes me the authentic self, which is just a, a, a word or a name to describe this being that has no name. I'm alive. So you have a story where you, you decide to get into running. And then you'd been running all your life. You thought of yourself as a good runner and um, you wanted to run five miles by a certain date and you achieved it. Mm -hmm. What if you hadn't achieved it? I would have probably just stayed there. But since, since then I've ran six marathons, 25 half marathons, and I don't know how many five Ks and three Ks. And I've reached a point where I think I'm done with running. I think I'm going to just, I, I took up kickboxing and I'm enjoying that, <laughs> but it's, and I'm liking yoga. Uh, but it got to the point where I remember running a race and at mile nine, I, I had overtrained, which means there's a difference when you undertrain and overtrain. When you undertrain, all of a sudden that ninth and 10th mile feel like, oh, I just don't have, it. I just, it's the most painful thing, but I just got to go through it. Because there's no, there's no fake it till you make it when you run. It's, this is the truth. That's like, this is where I'm at. When you overtrain and you hit mile nine and 10, it's not that you get tired. It's that all of a sudden you're like, 
I lose all motivation. I just like, I'm, I'm, I'm just tired. I'm, I'm done. So I reached that point where I overtrained. I, I overdid it and I didn't give myself enough rest. So for me, it's like knowing that moment where, okay, the motivator that took me to running is not there anymore. I enjoy running three or four miles, but not the long distance anymore because I have nothing to prove. I enjoyed it. I, it was the six marathons I ran was phenomenal. And my, my best time was five hours. That's, that's my time. That's where I'm at. Had I not finished that, like, had I not never done the five miles, I probably would have never experienced the best thrill in my life, which is proving myself doubt wrong. Had I not reached the five miles, myself, that would have just kept saying, you, you see, you couldn't do it. You, you couldn't have done it. You couldn't have done it. But when I did reach the five miles, I got to experience, I prove myself doubt wrong. And the best question in my life came through. What else can I do? And I was able to do it. But what if you hadn't achieved the five miles? What if you just were not physically capable of it? Well, the beautiful thing about that is that I have to imagine it as opposed to actually saying it. But what I just said, I would have just let myself doubt rule and just stop me from any possibility. You can say that is the moment where the infinite possibility that I am got limited by reinforcing a belief or a condition that says I couldn't do it. And it probably would have transferred and translated to other things in my life, like writing a book or because I, I use the same instrument that I go for running to write a book. You know, it's little by little. You, you, it's not a sprint. It's you pace yourself. It, it takes time. But it, it, it is, it is that thing. It's like, had I never crossed that five mile, I probably would have just let myself out continue to control until the moment where I probably would have said, that's okay. Miguel, you never ran the five miles and that's okay. That's, you didn't want that. What do you want? Right. At that moment, that cycle would have ended. Right. So then like, how would that, how would you be able to translate this disappointment in yourself? Like, let's say you just physically weren't able for some reason to run five miles and you were disappointed, crushingly disappointed. Mm -hmm. Like, which I experienced. Yes. <laughs> like, like somehow you have to transform that into self-love to, you have to forgive yourself for not being able to do that. So you can achieve the success without doubt in other areas. Yeah. No. And I, and I, I was saying before I experienced that, um, before I started running, I was, I played soccer. That was what, that's what, that was my cardio. And one day I was working on my first book and I was in a sitting in a pretzel position and I didn't realize both legs had fallen asleep. So when I got up both legs, I couldn't feel them. And I just tumbled and I severely twisted both my ankles and I had to relearn how to walk after some physical therapy and all that. I went for a run with my friend Shane. And I could barely run two miles. And I remember the barrage because part of me says, you were able to play soccer for all those, all that time. And now you can't even run two miles because I was expecting to be able to do more. And I know that cycle. I, I remember feeling that, that judgment of like, you could do this. Why aren't you doing it? And that whole cycle ended when I thought, all right, you know what? This is my truth today. I'm only able to run two miles. 
So it's all about if you have that cycle of self-judgment and just judging yourself, judging yourself over and over, and I'm no stranger to that. It's a matter of catching yourself. Like, okay, I'm doing this. How do I stop it? All right, this is my truth. Today, I'm able to only run two miles. Like I was saying before, there's no such thing as faking it till you make it and running. And that's true for a lot of things in life. This is what I'm able to do. And the moment you accept that, that chatter ends because you finally accepted this is my truth. Had I not never been able to run five miles after that, I would have accepted it. All right, fine, I can't run five miles. This is, this is as far as I'm able to do it. Luckily for me, I was able to cross that and all of a sudden I ran five miles and I proved myself that wrong. And that chatter really ended at that moment. But you can say it happened when I was able to say, this is where I'm at. Where do I want to go from here? Yeah, and what could have been another outcome? You know, as, as you've said, you, you ended up, do, you know, perhaps ending that chapter led you to then free yourself to discover alternative techniques of training or whatever, and you persistence and you ran the five miles. But what would have been another outcome that that's positive where you never ran the five miles and, and, and you were able to avoid the self-doubt? So you accepted yourself as, as at the two-mile point redirected my attention to something else. Okay, what, what do I want to do? Because mind you, like when I was young, especially in my, in my teens and 20s, I really had a lot of self-doubt. And I, I really had that, you know, that experience, you know, that I come from that, you know, just because I grew up in this family doesn't mean I didn't have it. Of course I had it. And it all came like to crashing in when I realized I wasn't what I pretended to be. So the moment I realized that that image, that ego, you know, the function of ego is to, to keep that illusion alive that image by which I domesticate myself or condition myself or love myself conditioning with. So the way that had I, had I have accepted, all right, I'm not going to run five miles is to redirect. Okay. What do I really want to do? What do I really want to do in my life? At the moment, the answer was, I do want to run it. And I continued and I, and I crossed it. You can say that that's what really, helped me cross that threshold. Had it not been what I really wanted and I was doing it just to live up to someone else's image, I just simply walk away from it. All right, what do I really want? So for me, that's, that's, the, that's the hypothetical because I can reflect that on other things I did in my life. I realized that I was doing it for someone else. I was doing it to prove my ego right or whatever. But it was always coming down like, all right, what do I really want? And you can say that's what allowed me to let go of the film industry and be where I'm at right now. But it was also true with relationships, you know, like that image. Like, I don't want to be that kind of a guy in the relationship. I want to change. I don't want to repeat that cycle again. What can I do to change that? And it became of more of a series of what I don't want to experience. I don't want to experience that. Okay, let's go this direction. You know, this is a different direction of what we were talking about, but 
you know, one thing about your writings and your father's and your brother's, and, and you write about this Toltec tradition of how everything's a dream that we kind of, you know, words are these man-made phenomena, but the world is not man-made. So as we can, we, we, we all individually have this narrative of the world. None of it is really true because it's all kind of mm -hmm. dreamlike compared to the words we used to describe things. And that philosophy, what's interesting to me is it echoes through so many traditions, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. like take, you know, Taoism, which is, you know, you can't even name what the Tao is mm -hmm. because it's nameless mm -hmm. and there's no words or, or even Judaism. There's mm -hmm. no, in Judaism, there's no name for God. You, there's no word for, for God mm -hmm. in Zen Buddhism, which is very similar to how you describe meditation in, in, in your books, there's also no real concept. You don't really think about, mm -hmm. you're, you're basically just supposed to be aware of the fact that there's nothing to be aware of. Mm -hmm. And then you have books by like Eckhart Tolle from the power of now, which is the only thing that exists is, is the now. And, and that, that echoes very much through your books and your, and your father's books. There's Nisargadatta Maharaj with his approach to anything that could be described as, is not real. So it was a book. I am that is you're not anything that you think you are. Mm -hmm. Why do you think so many traditions from different points in history, from all over the world, basically echo the same type of message about reality? Because a lot of us have experienced that in our, and we put it in, our, in a language we could understand. You, know, we, you can say every corner of, of this planet has ancestors or people who've experienced that moment of clarity and they use words to describe it. You know, if I, if I were to use pop culture right now, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson has one of my favorite quotes. The truth exists whether you believe in it or not. It doesn't need us human, humans for it to exist. A black hole was going to exist whether we proved it existed or not. Luckily, someone created a theory about it. Hawkins created all this paperwork. Then I forgot, I don't know the name of the doctor or the scientist who she created this algorithm that allowed all the these uh, satellites to be able to picture, take a picture of a black hole, and all of a sudden there it is. It became from a theory to fact. The black hole was going to exist with or without humans, but we created this idea, this concept, because we played with it, and we created it in this conscious until we were able to prove it. it became fact. So you can say what we are able to see. The things that exist with or without humans is the truth. It doesn't mean me. A belief, in contrast, exists for as long as you believe it. The moment you change that yes into a no, that belief will cease to exist, which means it's an illusion. It only exists because someone said yes to it. And the more people who believe it, the more it feels concrete. So you can say, every word we use in our vocabulary is an empty symbol whose definition is subject to agreement. There are words that are innocent here in the United States and not so innocent in the United Kingdom. And that's also true in Spanish. There's words that are innocent in Mexico and an obscene word in Argentina. Words are that empty symbol. So you can say that from that point of view, there is truth, that which exists with or without us. Then there's that which exists only by agreement. If we go outside our home, we will see 
everything that we as a society said yes to. The buildings that we see, the community said yes to it. The buildings that we don't see are the buildings that the community said no to. Someone had a no powerful enough to stop that building from being built, or it just simply was not meant for it. You can say that's the society that we have, that we create from something that is real. We create all this structures, art, music. So our society, our, what we call the dream of the planet. Now, mind you, in the, our tradition, the function of the mind is to dream. To dream is to perceive and to project. That's why we call it a dream. I have this system of perception that is my eyes, my ears, every, every single my nerve that's in my nervous system that allows me to perceive from a single point of perception. And from that point of view, I can see life as is, but at the same time, I can see life from the agreed upon structure of my society. For example, what's the truth? The living organism that I see through the window right there or the word tree? Is the word tree the truth or the organism? Obviously the organism, but our interpretation of tree Good tree, bad tree, right tree, wrong tree, that's all set by agreements. But the more people say yes to it, the more it feels real. And you can say that's what we talk about as the dream of the planet. As soon as the last human exists, it ceases to exist. Now, there's something beautiful about a rainbow. A rainbow only exists when there's an eye that perceives it. And it can take all kinds of shapes depending on which angle it exists. All it is is light going through water. It creates a spectrum. But it all depends on the eye for it to exist. The moment you can have light going through water in an empty room and no one will see that rainbow. But the moment you walk in, you will automatically see it. It's something beautiful that the mind can do, the, this nervous system can do. But that's something tangible that exists only to the, to the eye of the beholder. The other filter would be our interpretation, the meaning. What does it mean to see a rainbow? What is it? Is it beautiful? Is it ugly? Is it beautiful? Is it perfect? Is it... Now, that's all set by the agreements we make of one another. So you can say from that point of view, that's the illusion. Or you can use to say, there's only one tree, the tree of life. The tree of knowledge is the perfect reflection of the tree of life, but it's still just a reflection, like a mirror. And the more attached we come to the tree of knowledge, the more we think this is real. But ultimately, it only exists by agreement because we said yes to it. Like the word has a meaning or definition. There's only one tree. And that's the tree of life. Life is the truth, or what we see is the truth. So you have a moment of clarity. And what I've said can be translated in many different. It can resonate to all these cultures because all these cultures have used it. In fact, I've used all these cultures to describe this image. I can use the image of Mara. I can use the illusion of my ancestors, the dream of Tezcatlipoca. 
but it all is a story to put into words that we can ultimately understand. So for me, I like the image of Neil deGrasse Tyson's The Truth Exists Whether You Believe in It or Not, and a belief only exists for as long as you believe it. To describe this, the world is a dream. What we're talking about there is the world we created as humanity, society, our agreements, our, our, our culture. But as soon as the last human ceases to exist, it will all disappear. And all that will remain will be the truth, that which existed with or without us. Now, of course, the beautiful thing about us humans is that we are able to create, we are able to manifest. That's what makes us Toltec. The word Toltec means artist. And I realized that with every action I take, I can create something that is temporary because that belief will only exist for as long as we believe it. You know, we can say that there are things that we can see from our ancestors that transcended time because it continues to resonate and it changes in the way you tell the story, the way you interpret it, the way you perceive it. But for some reason, across the millennia, across the centuries, across the decades, it still resonates. The Beatles ceased to exist as a band in 1969, yet my son to this very day sings it because he, the melody resonates with him. It's, it's alive because it still sings to our heart. Da Vinci still resonates because we go in and we see the work of art and it takes our breath away. Leonardo, Jesus, Mohammed, Krishna, Buddha, Siddhartha, the ancestors of the Egypt, Egyptian times, the ancestors from that, uh, from all corners of the world, their story is resonates. And we live in a time and place where all of a sudden the wisdom of all our ancestors is just but a click away. It, it's a beautiful thing to learn from the ancestors from all across the world that all we have to do is put the effort to it. So from that point of view, the dream that we create, the only thing we can really control is my own, to the tips of my fingers. I can contribute, my father, myself, have contributed with our books, and they will, those books will only be alive for as long as it resonates with someone else. It, it, they stand on their own. It, it no longer has anything to do with me because now it's totally up to the reader and the reader will have an interpretation and an idea, an aha moment that is completely their own because my aha moments stayed in, that, in, in those words. But the experience that the reader will have, positive or negative, will be completely the reader's, kind of like my son. My son has a tantrum. He gets angry. He gets frustrated. What calms him down is the Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, the Beach Boys, Depeche Mode, and Gorillas. And all of a sudden, he hears the song, I'm happy, I'm feeling glad I got sunshine. And all of a sudden, he starts singing along and he starts, all of a sudden, there he goes. You know, he's like, he's singing, Strawberry Fields Forever. And then, the beautiful thing he does is that he changes the lyric, but not the melody. All of a sudden he's, he's changing the words, which in autism is actually a great thing because he's playing with words and saying something he wants to say, but is using the melody of the Beatles to take him there. 
for me, is like phenomenal when, it, when he starts changing the words to losing the sky with diamonds and putting words to something that he experienced that day. And like, there's the channel, there's the communication. And all of a sudden, that work of art, not the, not the lyrics, necessarily the lyrics, but the melody, the song itself, boom. And that's the dream. That's the creation. We're able to create something that in someone else resonates and the, the resonance, the how it resonates with an individual, that's the truth. My emotions are real. What triggers it may not be real, but my emotions to it are. Because my emotions is what I experience. It reminds me of what you how you were describing your very first talks and writings. At first you said you felt like a cover band, but and to some extent, if someone sings a Beatles song, let's say to the public, they're like a cover band. But what makes a good cover band versus a not so good cover band is they bring their own unique voice. So you said you had to find your voice. You were still using the things taught to you by your grandmother and your father, but now you brought your own interpretation, your own words to it, just like your son brought his own words to the, the platform developed by the Beatles, the, the melody, and created his own unique thing that he was able to appreciate even even more. And And yeah. it sounds like that's to some extent what life is, rather than just mimicking the the teachers the parents the 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 boss the whoever that is judging you is to to take what what's in society what's already been created this dream but bring your own voice to it your own authenticity to it yeah and, and, and the beautiful thing is we're talking about a band beatles who they themselves started being they, they were a cover band themselves you know that's that's yeah. what they played in hamburg and liverpool until all of a sudden they start coming up with love me do you know, but before love, before love me do, they were just a pure cover band, and all of a sudden they just developed. And as time progressed, they went from from me to you to you and me to all of a sudden. Dylan comes in and helps them talk about something else. It's like the the Rolling Stones; they were a pure cover band, and mm -hmm. finally their manager said, "Look, you need to do what these Beatles guys are doing. You mm -hmm. know, be a pair like." Uh, you know, Mick Jagger and Keith would write your own songs, be like Lennon and McCartney. Mm -hmm. And the first time they tried to do it, they, they couldn't do it. They were failing at writing their first song and they took a walk around the block. They ran into Lennon and McCartney also taking a walk. Yeah. And they said, oh, we can't write a song like you guys. And Lennon and McCartney went up with them to their apartment and they wrote the song together. And that's how the, that's really how they, they started to learn songwriting. Yep. Everything's interesting. Yeah, it's like we, we inspire each other. And that's, you can say that's the truth. That's, that's the beautiful thing about us humans, that we can create truths that may be temporary, but for that moment, it exists. And it's beautiful. It's like that's what makes us an artist. And not just with music and, and, and writing, but almost everything. Everything is a work of art. Everything we do, we create, we manifest. And the only thing that stops us from calling everything art is our idea of what should be this, it should be that, whatever it's just, but if, if man, if, if the Dadaists can change the whole game the way they did, you know, we can also change the whole game ourselves. Like it's our creation. This is what I manifest. And if it worked the first time, great. If it didn't work the first time, great. At least now I took the step going forward and I know what to do now. Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., you've written so many incredible books and have been a great inspiration to me through the years. And I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you coming on on the podcast. It's like a, a dream for me to have people like you on the on the podcast. And uh I really appreciate it. And you know, 
anytime you have anything you want to talk about, feel free to reach out and come come back on the podcast. And, oh, and you're always welcome. And and once again, I I super appreciate it. Well, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity, James, for having me. Um, and we're you know we're brothers in the sense that we're parents of, of special needs kids. But man, my our kids are our greatest teacher, man. They're 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 the most ruthless teachers that can teach us about everything in life. I'll I'll go along with the word ruthless, and we'll see. Sometimes they're the teachers. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And but the best best job in the world. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.